Hello, fantasy and adventure fans, and welcome to A.S. Thornton's Daughter of the Salt King. I'm Kayla, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. I'll be introducing you to each one of our episodes of A.S. Thornton's fantasy, Daughter of the Salt King. It's a story that reads as if Aladdin were told from Jasmine's perspective, but with a dark twist. But that's not why I'm excited about this story. No, Daughter of the Salt King is one of those unputdownable books that draws you into a riveting imaginary world. It's a book to live in. Being a daughter of the Salt King may sound like every girl's dream, but the Salt King isn't known for his kindness and generosity, nor is his daughter, Amel, who's known instead for her obedience and acceptance of her life. But being in the middle of the desert is not the only thing that has trapped Amel, and as her time in her father's clutches dwindles, she is desperate to find a way out of his court that isn't his way. It seems like this should be easy when she finds her father's best guarded secret, a wish-granting Ginny. CamCat Publishing presents The Daughter of the Salt King by A.S. Thornton. Narrated by Vane Asadorian. Part 1 Khaled Creation There was an immense tree that gave strong wood and sweet fruit. The goddess Masira thought, This tree makes life too easy. Man grows weak. She tore it from the ground and shook out its roots, spilling grains of sand and drops of water. From the sand, Arab was born. From the water, Wahir. She was fascinated by her sons and grew so possessive over them, she desired that none else should have sons of their own. From this point forward, Masida said, There shall be no more trees that give life. And so, the desert was born. The sons were exhausted by the world's bleakness and angered by the weak people who caused it. Mother is right, Arab said. People must be made hard from a hard life. So Arab crafted a great light above his head, so hot the ground desiccated beneath his feet. Now, Arab said, the people will suffer as they deserve. Seeing his brother's searing light and dried earth, Wahir was repulsed. He said, Mother, brother, man cannot live in the world you have made, and cruelty will not lead to strength. He stepped through the sand, and in his footsteps, people found cool water and a respite from the sun under the small trees that grew there. Seeing how man swaddled his body in cloth to protect himself from Arab's light, Wahir fashioned a dark sky and pale light that split the world so that they would have cool nights to break from the day. Masida watched her sons and saw that they were both right. She was satisfied, for her sons were of her spirit, and she proclaimed all living things, but man, most of all, shall likewise be of both light and dark. Excerpt from the Litab al-Mur 
Chapter 1 These cards were worn to fatigue like everything we had, and I cradled them with my fingers, the better to keep them secret from my sisters. Three cards lay on the ground between us, awaiting mine, the last. The images had long ago begun to fade, so I surveyed them carefully before making my next move. A spider in a glistening web, a buzzard above its carrion, a vessel of fire. I looked back to the cards in my hand and a greedy smile spread across my face. Next to the others, I placed a golden eagle soaring beside a blue moon. My sisters groaned. I had won. Again. Praise Arab for this embarrassment of riches. I held out my hand and they dropped their chipped glass beads and cowries into my palm. The cards were collected and shuffled while I added the tokens to my pile, now the largest. My smile widened as I picked up my new hand. There was a rush of air and shock of sunlight as the tent's entrance was pulled open. Our attendant, arriving just as I won, of course. I huffed and turned to her, waiting to see whom she would call so we could return to our game. Emel, come. She did not look at me. She tossed my name at the 26 of us who sat inside, daughters of the Salt King, my full and half-sisters, and disappeared behind the fabric that sealed the entrance. Sons, I was not prepared to hear my name. My heart quickened, and like the sand of an hourglass, dread filled me. I had hoped the suitor would choose one of my sisters so I would not have to endure another failed courting, to face lengthy preparation before an evening of pretense, only to conclude in a morning soaked with failure. Then again, a suitor was the only answer to my wish for escape. Sighing, I set down the limp cards. Open that tent back up, eh? Pinar called to the guards outside. We could provide drink for the gods if you collected our sweat. She wiped at her hair, a wet lattice on her forehead. Store it in silver bottles and perhaps father could sell that for da, too, Tavi muttered under her breath. The request would go unanswered. We were not allowed to draw open the tent, lest palace visitors glimpse us in our home. We were the Salt King's most protected jewels, the mythical Ahiran, whom powerful men from across the desert came to bed and, if satisfied, carry home astride their camels. Each daughter married was another jackal leashed. Father's reign strengthened every time he transformed a would-be contender into a son. I pushed my winnings to the center of our circle with shaking hands, the pile spilling. Better to end when the sun is high. Let's all remember that I was the winner, eh? I stood slowly. Good luck tonight, Rahima said as she divided my prize among the remaining players. My sisters watched me go. Some mumbled under their breath, wishing they had been chosen in my stead. If you aren't choking on his dagger, you aren't doing it right. Pinar said. The girls giggled from their sand-strewn mats. My lips twitched. If he talks too much, just shove those udders in his face, Kadri added. Or your coups. Riotous laughter now. Even I succumbed. Quiet, I hissed. He'll get us all in trouble. My sisters fanned themselves with the corners of thin blankets as they bantered about the best betting techniques, ignoring me. 
I lifted a dark wool abaya from the basket and patted sweat from my brow with its embroidered edge. The intricate designs marked us as belonging to the king, but the tattered and fraying hems revealed, to the keen observer, our worth. I shook my head at my sister's ribaldry, but I was grateful for their distractions. Maybe this time you can get him to request you for a second night. My smile disappeared at Sabra's bitter words. She always found a place to sink her stinger. I did not acknowledge her and pulled the cloth quickly over my head so that my amber-dried fustan was completely covered. I tied a threadbare black veil over my hair. The setting sun sizzled outside of the tents. Though our walk would be short, the sun punished those who did not protect themselves from its glare. My attendant waited for me outside. The veil covering her face did not conceal her disapproval as she listened to the advice my sisters were still hollering through the fabric walls. An adolescent boy, as swathed as the attendant beside him, was more discomfited by the obscenities. He shifted his weight from side to side, absently brushing his fingers against the hilt of his rusted scimitar. He was one of my many half-brothers. He was also my guard. Our eyes met. His shoulders tensed, and I quickly looked away. Make no mistake, he was not there to protect me from others. I nodded to the pair. Hadya? Bahir? Shall we? Hadya strode away with a huff, her robes billowing like clouds behind her. Indecent shrieks and groans emerged from behind me now. I looked back to my tent. Beside the entrance, two guards' eyes watered and shoulders shook with mirth. We walked briskly through the narrow path between rows of palace tents. Bahir trailed close behind me, his chest puffed and chin raised high. The servants' homes were held open with thick camel's hair rope, in hopes that the wind would find ingress to carry away the heat. Goats were spun over fires, milk poured into big vats for cheese, and pots set out to harden in the sun. Servants called to one another, shoving reels of fabric into each other's arms or dousing the flames of the smelting fires with sand. The flurry and sounds of the palace collided around us. All for the Salt King. My stomach turned on itself as we walked, my nerves a pestle to my insides as I prepared for my role in the king's court. I envied the servants in that moment, how simple their lives must be, to roast or weave or hew, then be done for the day. Sure, there was no great glory, but, too, there was no great risk. And security, a clear future, was favorable to my unknown. The servants looked up from their work as I passed, carefully positioned between my attendant and guard. This procession, the embroidered clothes on my back, revealed what I was, and they knew what awaited me. Did they watch me thinking of my past failures? I'm sure they laughed behind my back, a waste of time for the king. I was to be a forever Ahira, until I was twenty-three and thrown into the streets as used and useless as the playing cards. A little girl ran from her home into the path, shrieking with laughter, chased by two boys not much older. A red birthmark trailed from her eyebrow to the edge of her lip. I remembered when she was born, how I had thanked Arab I was not cursed with the same mark upon my skin. But now, I saw that it was she who was lucky.
The trio whipped past Hadia, who grunted in disapproval, before they flew past me and further down the lane. A laughing woman emerged from the tent behind them and, upon seeing us, fell to her knees. Forgive me, forgive them, she mumbled over and over, brow pressed to her clasped hands. Bahir barked at her, his boy's voice suddenly harsh like a man's. A bird cried out as it soared above us in the purpling sky. Oh, to be that bird. Finally, we arrived at a large tent the color of sunrise, the Zafif, where I was to be prepared. I followed Hadia in, leaving Bahir to stand guard outside. It was time. Scents of crushed roses and warm honey met my nose. Attendants in flowing, colorful fustan stood from cushions and thick mattresses at my arrival. They rushed to greet us as Hadia whisked off her coverings, revealing braided graying hair and a camel-colored dress, which I eyed enviously. Because she was a servant, her clothes were simpler than mine. No bright patterns nor embellishments that signified she belonged only in the palace. She could go anywhere in those. Hadia's eyes softened when she smiled. The stern charade had been cast off with her abaya and veil. Beauty. She smoothed the hair from my face. It's been too long. Her hand moved down my back. She tapped my bottom and winked. You should listen to your sisters. They give good advice. She walked off and began fussing with the various jars and vessels they would need to ready me that evening, calling over her shoulder. This will be your husband. I just know it. Arab has given many signs today. Did you see the clouds on the horizon this morning? They were so dark, perhaps promising rain, Adila said. And the vultures that circled the bazaar, another attendant added. There were three, one who searched for his mate. The woman trailed off, discussing the good omens bestowed on us that day. Of course, I had seen none. Ahiran were forbidden from leaving the palace. Their hope smoothed my unease, but still, the pressure of the evening was too great to smile, the knot in my chest too tight to speak. I had met the suitor that afternoon at the courting, where he surveyed my sisters and I like a meal to be savored. He was stiff and proud, and when he finally spoke to me, even his curious accent was not intriguing enough for me to take interest. Evidently, I had played my role well. He'd chosen me tonight. Hadia saw my face and banged her open hand against the copper basin, a loud ringing startling us all. Well, come on then. The prince needs more than a hand to keep him company. I slipped off my sandals and flexed my toes into the soft woven rug before I went to the jasmine-scented water. The water surface rose to my neck as I lowered myself into the bath. The pain in my chest eased as I relaxed against the basin wall, my shoulders falling back. I listened to the attendants' gossip, their words a calming cadence as I closed my eyes. Then, A runner arrived today? My eyes flew open. The caravan arrives tomorrow, the attendant continued excitedly. From where? I asked. Emel? Hadia warned as she scrubbed my skin. The woman pursed her lips. North, I think. North. Hoping she was right, 
I mused about what and who the caravan might be bringing. Hadia dunked a bowlful of water over my head. I sat forward, sucking in a startled breath. Look at you, a woman of the court, she emphasized the last words. I remember when you were just a girl. She took my hand to clean under my nails. You were so excited when you were requested the first time. Must you remind me? My free hand covered my eyes. You talked and talked about what kind of wife you would be for him and how you would please him. Where has that girl gone? Now you want to talk of salt, trade, and politics. She tutted disapprovingly and pulled my hand from my face to clean that one too. I was naive. Not such a fool now. You weren't a fool, Hadia said. You were smart, focusing only on that which affected you. She narrowed her eyes at me. I bit my tongue as she continued. And you were hopeful, too. As you should be still. It was true. I was not yet finished as a Nahira, with over a year left before my father would cast me out. There was still a chance a man would choose me for a wife. Still a chance I would finally leave the palace. But finding hope was difficult when it was buried beneath the rejections of dozens of suitors who had come before. Perhaps I'd have better luck if I doused flame with salt. What was it they saw to make them turn from me every time? I looked at my knuckles. Too bony? My palms? Too many lines? Or did they see that I did not want them? That I only wanted what they could offer me, that I only wanted to be free from the palace. When my bath finished, my skin dry, Hadia brought me a large goblet of wine. I consumed it dutifully, barely tasting it. An attendant waved a fan of palm fronds toward me as I lay back onto the feather-stuffed mattress. I shivered beneath the breeze. Thank you, I sighed. I wanted to stay there forever, never feeling heat again. The wine hit me swiftly, and the world began to shimmer and spin. I closed my eyes and smiled lazily as my worries began to recede. A sharp burn splashed against my thigh and my eyes flew open. Hot honey wax. With a terrible rip, it was removed. I clenched my teeth and my eyes watered. It was repeated again and again and again. You need a stronger drink. Hadia grunted when the women finished. She mixed two liquids in a curving vessel and decanted it into a small goblet. Arak. It smelled of anise and looked like camel's milk. My father's favorite spirit could unsteady even the strongest carouser. I sipped it slowly, disliking its bitter taste but needing it to soothe me. I knew with it I would perform better. The world twisted and tilted. Stay still, Hedia put her hands on my shoulders to stop my swaying. Hadn't the world been moving under my feet? My hair was braided as she held me. Coal was lined around my eyes. He will want to devour you whole, Adila said as rose-scented oil was smoothed into my skin. And I will let him, I purred, touching a droplet of the oil and pressing it to the bow of my upper lip. I stumbled when I stood, Hadia's quick hands holding me up. Careful. 
An unblemished, diamond-studded garment of shining green silk was taken from a copper box. Besides the jewels that decorated our necks and wrists, it was the nicest thing an Ahira would wear. All loans from our father for recordings only. Strings pulled at my back, tightening the clothes onto my breasts and hips until I could take deep breaths no longer. Soft slippers cocooned my feet. Hedia placed my headpiece, from which hung delicate chains that veiled my mouth and jawline and tickled my skin. Everything sparkles, and I sparkle too, I slurred as I gazed at my reflection on the basin water's surface. The attendant sighed in admiration. Hadya said, How can he say no to a beauty like you? Then whispered into my ear, Don't spoil anything by talking of that which doesn't concern you, and you will be sealed into marriage. There it was again. Marriage. Like a hook, it pulled back all of my dread, my fear of failure. The Borach? I searched around the room for that which I knew would help. Adila rushed to a table to collect a tarnished silver tray. Hadia worked efficiently with the metal instruments there, igniting, scooping, adjusting. I watched, entranced by the deftness of her hands. She held out a curved pipe, and I slipped it between the strands of my veil, seating it between my lips. Tasting the tang of metal, I leaned over the lamp until the dried petals burned. Hungrily, I inhaled. Charred honey filled my mouth, filled my lungs. The burning desert rose was named after Burar, the winged steed of legends, for its effects on the mind. The one who inhaled the rose would feel light enough to fly. I gulped in the smoke, eyes closed, clutching the pipe like it was my only tether to the world. Take me to him, I said when I was finished. Good girl, Hadia said, her hand rubbing my back. Can't take your pride into those halls. Best to leave it here with us. Alcohol swirled in my blood. Smoke spun in my chest. I floated inches above the ground. This suitor was my only chance out. I could not let my fears and worries of failure tarnish my performance. Tipping up my chin, I left the Zafif and strode into the palace. I was an emerald goddess and a Hira of the Salt King, and I would find my freedom. My steps were silent in the hallway. Only the ching-ching of the chains hanging from my clothes would be heard as I staggered through the narrow corridors, trailing the guard. Mesmerized by the torch flames that danced in the air, the patterned carpets that covered the sand, and the pristine fabric walls that towered above me, I took slow, unsteady steps. I was within the opulent heart of the palace, the king's tents. It was the most heavily guarded, entered only by wealthy visitors and royalty. Holding my arms out to the side, I spun in the hallway pretending to be a bird flying through the sky. I was a kite with green feathers soaring above the tall, white peaks of Father's tents. Circles of servants' quarters and workrooms surrounded Father's private chambers. I imagined how it would appear on a map. How did maps get made if people could not fly? I stopped to consider this seriously. Birds were somehow involved. I strutted around like a walking bird, 
a map-making bird. I giggled. The guard whipped his head around. Sons be damned, he muttered. Stop that. He stopped and reached his hand toward me. I backed away from his grasp. The drunken fantasies fell away. Forgive me, I mumbled. I took measured steps forward, now using my arms only for balance. We entered a soaring room that glowed golden from its glinting metal lanterns. Servants waved palm fronds toward the center. The softly moving air sent the fires into violent fits that demanded my attention. Not bad, boomed the king. I jumped at the sound and tore my gaze from the flames. My father sat upon an immense gilded throne, peering at the goblet in his hand as he licked his lips. They said they'd be bringing more. Twenty bottles. And if you found this to your liking, you get first pick before they're sent to the bazaar. Nasser, my father's vizier, said from his seat at a small table nearby. My father took another long drink. He was not a large man, but in that chair, he was tremendous. Heaps of white crystalline granules and stacked gray slabs surrounded him. Salt. His wealth displayed so all who visited could see the worth of their ruler. It was why the caravans came, and what the rest of the desert needed so desperately. The Salt King was the only one who had it. Neither he nor Nasser acknowledged me, though I now stood before them. They continued their conversation of the runner that Nasser met earlier in the day, and of what the caravan promised to supply. Father nodded absently, tapping his goblet until Nasser filled it again. Finally, as if an afterthought, he turned to me. I stared at his feet, willing the world to stop its revolutions, and knelt before the Salt King. My king, I said, sweetening my voice. I pressed my forehead to the rug, my palms flat on the ground. Tightly closing my eyes, I stretched my arms in front of me, slowly reaching until I felt it, the edge of a salt pile. Moving slowly so I wouldn't be seen, I pushed my fingertips into the heap until the coarse salt swallowed them. Very good. Up, father said board. I curled my fingers and scooped the fine crystals into my palm. Standing, I raised my eyes to him slowly. His white, silk-lined boots had rubies that sparkled at the end of curling toes. The folds of his red and ivory robes cascaded around his large belly. A long beard draped from his face of deep, waxy creases. His black eyes, the eyes we shared, were yellowed from life at a decanter. He stared at me with furrowed brow. Cold panic swept through me, washing away the liquor, and I dropped my gaze to the ground, chewing my cheek behind the veil. Had he seen my theft? Asher will be pleased with her. The vizier's voice dripped with honey. I nodded toward Nasser, but sons, I wanted to spit on his silk slippers. The king set the goblet on the table and dabbed sweat from his face with his handkerchief. They are never pleased, he said. His thick, bejeweled fingers twirled the fabric, his long nails snagging the threads as he leaned back in his chair. The accusation in his gaze was quickly replaced with apathy. 
so he did not see me steal his salt. He simply wanted to remind me of my inadequacy. Of course. I stopped grinding my cheek between my teeth. Asher's time has begun, the king said, gesturing to the tall hourglass whose narrow stream of sand was just beginning to fill the base. But your own time is short, Emel. If he is not satisfied when I speak to him tomorrow, I will urge him to request one of your sisters and not waste further time with you. No doubt with another, he will find his wife. One night? My heart sank. If the suitor desired it, I could have three nights to show how I would be a suitable wife. If my father convinced him to choose someone else after the first night, there would be no hope for me. Nasser butted in, flailing his hands. When you have had such successes with your other daughters, we must ask if perhaps it is not the sire, but the dam. Anger burned through the rest of my high. I collected bloodied spit in my mouth, rolling it between my cheeks, imagining a life where I could really do it, where I could reach his feet from where I stood, damn all the consequences. It is no flaw of mine, of that I am sure, the king waved his hand toward his vizier, keeping his gaze on me. Emel, let me remind you that these men are threats to our home. Weak ones, sure. I could destroy their settlements if I wanted. But what good would that do me? Your mother will be so ashamed if two of her daughters fail. Sabra? Well... He shrugged. Dismissing her so casually, even I felt stung. You're almost, what, two and twenty? I cannot bear the thought of throwing such a beautiful bird out to the foxes. He pouted and looked down at his sash, from which several blades and trinkets hung. Carefully, he detached a glass vessel wrapped in golden bands. I said, I will try harder. I will not disappoint you or mother. I pressed my hands together and took a step toward my father. He paid me no more attention, distracted by the vessel he held in his palm. Inside, tarnished gold smoke churned lazily with nowhere to escape. His eyes followed the billows and swirls of the smoke possessively. I followed his gaze. I could not deny its allure as I, too, was entranced by its beautiful movement. Even Nasser peered at it curiously. My father was never without the thing and I did not let myself linger on the thought that my father found wine and a trinket more worthy of his attention than his own daughter. Tearing his gaze from the vessel, he said, Asher is from a strong family. He would be an asset to me, and it is your duty to secure him. Arab has blessed you by allowing you to share his bed tonight. Do not squander this gift. He waved his hand to dismiss me and rose unsteadily. Nasser jumped up to support him. Isra! My father shouted, and with Nasser at his side, left the tent, a train of slaves at his heels. His absence sent a ripple of relief through me, and my shoulders fell forward as I waited. A woman entered the room, and I turned eagerly toward her. 
Her flowing dress, fastidiously decorated with bright stripes and zigzagging lines, barely concealed the curves she had acquired as a mother and a wife. She held her head high, the coins and colored beads on her beautiful veil, the veil of a king's wife, glinting as she approached. I mirrored her strong posture. The coal lining her eyes swept up to her temples. The corners of her mouth pulled up into a tight smile, as if secrets were waiting to tumble from her lips. Mama! I ran to her. She stepped forward, arms stretched wide, and we collided. Frankincense clung to her hair and clothes. You're lovely. Her fingers pressed the jewels on my head, my hips, passed over the skin of my arms, my shoulders. Her touch lingered on the metallic veil that covered my mouth. And how are you? She asked with eyebrows raised. A test. I am much better now. You do not sound sincere, she interrupted. Try harder. Mama, I am trying to help. Don't get mad at your mother. This is pointless, I spat. It isn't my fault they don't choose. I don't want to fight. I just want... She hesitated and closed the distance between us. For you to be wed, to get out of here. She said it quickly and quietly into my ear. To any guard, it would have seemed as though she had simply pressed her cheek to mine. She stepped back. Are you ready to meet him? Of course. I squeezed the salt in my left fist more tightly. She put her arms around my shoulders and pulled me close, her scent surrounding me. Be your very best tonight, Emel. I did not understand the plea I heard in her words. Why did she seem a touch more desperate to see me gone than before? Had she heard that father was allowing me only one night with Asher? I pulled away, not wanting to hear more when I seemed destined to fail. Unable to meet her eyes, I dropped my gaze to the golden medallion she always wore around her neck. She grasped my shoulders one last time, taking in every detail. Then she said, Show him why he must take you home. Pouring the salt into a leather pouch I hid beneath the beaded fabric on my hips, I followed the guard. He led me through the palace until we came upon the private courting tent. He waits, the guard said and parted the entrance. I pushed out my chest, lifted my chin, and stepped into the dimly lit space. You're here, Asher said, stepping on his robe as he stood in a rush. I maintained my composure. Most suitors did not feel the need to acknowledge our arrival with such fuss. He continued with an apologetic shrug. I have been waiting so long, I am afraid I drank almost all the wine. His accent had been notable at the courting, but now, slurred with drink, it was enchanting. I wondered what life was like where he was from, but I promised Hadia I would not ask of such things. I bowed. My apologies for keeping you waiting. It takes time to prepare for a Mohammi such as yourself. I spread compliments like oil. Let me pour you a drink, he said. Maybe it was the wine, or maybe it was being away from the piercing stare of the king. But now, Asher seemed more at ease, 
less proud. He turned back to the table where two goblets sat by a silver decanter, but I grabbed his arm. I trailed my fingertips down the sleeve of his robes to his hand, where he held his pipe. I would rather put my mouth on this, I whispered, taking his pipe and placing it between my lips. I inhaled the sweet honey smoke, feeling a rush of warm air beneath my feet. Ah, oh, well. He watched me warily. May I remove that? He asked of the metal veil. Asher, you may do whatever you please. He reached over with clumsy fingers and removed it. I closed my eyes while he did, the world swirling slightly as I leaned forward. The veil tangled in my hair and pulled sharply as it was detached. He tossed it onto a cushion. The sounds of the chains and jewels clattering against each other muted the instant they landed on the carpets. You are much more beautiful than your sisters, he said. I could see as much this afternoon, and I see it again now. Is that why you chose me? I asked. No. It was the way you watched your sisters and the servants. They held your attention so much better than I did. I had to know why, he smirked. It is no wonder you have not been wed, if that was how you act around all the suitors. I pressed my lips together, wondering if he was right. Was that my problem all along? Could they all see that they were only a means to an end? Finally, I said, Perhaps I have not found the right man. Perhaps it is me, he shrugged, and I saw that in his hesitance, he was as nervous as I. Taking my hand, he guided me to the large bed in the center of the room. It was so soft, it took great effort to keep my eyes from drooping closed. We leaned against the pillows, and I faced him, eager to prove him wrong, to show him that I cared for him. Tell me of your family. I have two wives, Fadwa and Amani. They are older than you and have given me five children, four sons and a daughter. As he told me of his family, he spoke so kindly, I found it was easy to listen, to watch his mouth move and face soften. My daughter's eyes are like yours, black as night. She is a child of Arab. He seemed to stare at nothing, but certainly he saw her there beside him. Always running without shoes, uncaring of the sand's heat. He smiled as he talked, laughing as he described his wild children. He loved his family tenderly. I imagined what it would be like to count myself among them. Would he love me as he loved his other wives? Would we have children who danced in the desert? a little girl who looked like me and ran across the ground with feet bare. Soon, I smiled with him, warming to his words, and to him. Are you comfortable? I fingered the edges of his robes as I curled into him, wanting him to see he had my full attention. He shrugged out of the robes. I helped, pushing them from his shoulders, deliberately sweeping my fingers over his chest and neck. I dropped my gaze to his mouth as I placed my hand on his thigh. I moved up to his hip. He pitched forward and pressed his lips to mine. 
His heat and scent of dusty, sweaty skin surrounded me. I closed my eyes and moved my mouth to match his as I was taught. His tongue was greedy and I responded in kind. I hummed softly and reached for the bulge between his legs. He caressed my breast through the beating. I felt little at his touch, but moaned as I knew men liked. He broke free of my mouth and twisted his body so that he lay beneath me. His hands explored me in a clumsy effort, and I was reminded of the young Muhammis I had bedded. I pressed into him rhythmically, faster and harder, harder and faster. Perhaps you should... He gestured to my clothes, breathing heavily. I rose. With my back to him, I undressed methodically, seductively. When I turned to face him, he was already naked. I studied the man who would share my bed that night. His chest sagged and his belly bulged forward. It mattered not how he appeared, only where he might take me. And if he treated me well, too, then I could not let him slip through my fingers. I pulled him with me back onto the cushioned bed. He clambered over me. His body was atop mine, elbows digging into the mattress beside my chest, his breath blowing in my face at quick bursts. I was grateful for the rose oil on my lip. He stabbed between my legs, attempting to find where he fit, and I tilted my hips to guide him. When he found his place, he thrust firmly. I gasped and tossed my head back. Welcome, fresh air met my nose and mouth. He continued grunting. Drops of sweat fell off of him and onto me. His pace quickened and his groans increased in frequency. I knew I performed my role satisfactorily when he found release. He cried out, I cried out, and it was done. Asher said nothing and rolled to his side, scooting away until we no longer touched. My stomach turned and my mind spun. So that was it then. I counted my exhales, letting out my drunken, stupid hopes. Of course this man would be no different than the others. He would choose one of my sisters. They all would. It's all a bit awkward, isn't it? Asher said, after a long time passed. I said nothing, unsure of what he wanted to hear. The bed shifted, and Asher rose, retrieving his clothes. Care for a walk? We can't. I can't leave the palace. I sat up, watching him curiously. Through the palace, then. He bent down and picked up my clothes, peering at the tangled chains and ties with alarm. He set them on the bed beside me. Please, come. I would follow because I had to, but I did so without hesitation, because something about this man was different than the others. Chapter 2 When Asher said he wanted to leave the tent with his Ahira at his side, the guard's face creased with disapproval. It was an unconventional request. My suitor was again the man I saw at the courting, haughty and uncompromising. With a show of reluctance, the guard let us go, and he did not follow. I stayed silent as I led us through the palace, waiting for Asher to explain his strange behavior. Wrapped in his robe that smelled of burakh smoke, I imagined I was his wife and we were walking through our own home. 
He wanted to breathe the night air, he had said, so I led him to the edge of the palace where there was a gap in the surrounding date palm fence. It was where we could slip through so that we could see the sky as it fell to the ground. Silent, I sat beside Asher. He stared at the desert, nearly invisible in the moonless night, and I was comforted by his slow breaths. Though I was exhausted, my mind spun with worries of how he felt about me. Had I not been enough? But he had wanted to walk with me. Surely that meant something. Hadje's recollection of my first suitor slid through my thoughts, how different I had been then. In my fourteenth year, my hopes were sky high. Everyone told me I would wed quickly. I would not be long in my father's court. Mama, especially, told me with glistening eyes how she couldn't wait for me to see the desert. My first Mohammi took me quickly. What man could resist a virgin girl? He did not request me again. Another sister, superior in every way, smaller hands, quieter steps, softer hair, left with him. I cried and cried to Hadje, vowing I would not fail again. I told Mama I would not disappoint my family once more. Aloud, I never said how unclean he made me feel, how it felt like a part of me left with him. Dozens of suitors later, I was an expert lover, but even so, I splintered with each bedding, each rejection. Though questions and self-doubt plagued me, still, I wished for them to come and take me away. Because after all, this was my fate, and whatever waited for me after marriage had to be better than this. Perhaps love was in my future, or at least a life of choices I could own. I was an Ahira and slave to my king. I would carry on until I bedded expertly and was wed, or I was discarded by my father to live in squalor as a forsaken Ahira. They were the only cards I held in my hand, so I had to choose the one that, at least, held hope. Emel? From the light of the palace tents behind us, I could see him looking at me. Hmm? What's this? He pressed his finger against my cheek, against a tear. He was again the hesitant, kind man who loved his family and home. I wiped at my cheeks with my palms and shook my head. Nothing. Drink makes me emotional, that's all. A distraction is what you need, then. He took my hand in his, concern in his eyes. Without his turban, he appeared much younger. My children say I am an excellent storyteller. He raised his eyebrows like a merchant selling spice for twice its value. I am no child who needs a story. You'll be sorry you missed it. It was a good one about a genie and the child who found him. He threw his hands into the air, gesturing offense, and leaned back. I scoffed playfully, eased by his lightheartedness despite myself. I've heard all the stories of Jin. Ah, if you've heard them all, tell me one I don't know. He was teasing me now. I narrowed my eyes. I don't understand you. No, you don't. He took my hand in his and kissed my knuckles very seriously. His beard tickled my skin. I am a complicated and mysterious man.
I couldn't help it. I laughed. Had I ever laughed with a suitor before? My hopes fluttered dangerously close to the fire. He said, Tell me a story of your home. Is there anything better to take from travels than a story? It can be shared again and again and won't weigh down my camel's back. The story of the Salt King, then. A large grin spread across his face, and his eager attention locked on me. The Salt King was born along the northeast trading route in a large settlement that traded ivory and gold for bricks of salt. He learned quickly that the greatest rulers were not dependent on the salt trade, and he knew the tales of the city where salt was not mined, but found glistening on rocks. Bah! Asher swung his hand through the air. You mean the desert's edge? I nodded excitedly. You've heard of it. It's all legend. Fantasy. My people have spent our entire lives on camelback. The desert doesn't end. I shrugged. Shall I continue, or will you tell me more about my story? The words came out like they would have with my sister's. I bit my lip, fearing I'd been too harsh. Asher waved me on, smirking. I relaxed. He set out to find what he knew must exist. Gradually, others joined him, also eager to find wealth. The people packed and unpacked their lives, hitching and unhitching their camels, moving their livestock, assembling and disassembling their homes, over and over again in search of salt. So your father started as a salt chaser. I didn't know that, Asher said, shaking his head. I hate that epithet. Isn't everyone until they find it? I lifted my chin, and he had the decency to look scolded. I softened my voice. Their journeying stopped when they came upon an oasis. I can't wait to hear more of this oasis. I shushed him. My apologies, princess. They came upon an oasis. It seemed like all others with a small patch of swaying trees that beckoned, an island of green amongst the sand. I spread my fingers and, in the air, painted the oasis with my hands. My father went in to be the first to drink from the water. Was it life-giving or life-taking? The people watched him disappear, praying that he would return. They waited through two sunrises, sure he had not survived to drink. At last, he was seen leaving. The king spoke with the guards who protected his path. Then, the guards turned toward the people, raised their swords high over their heads, and pressed their blades into the sand. The journey had ended. Asher cackled loudly. That is very dramatic. Is that really how your father would end his travels? With a sword show? Pressing my hand to his lips, I turned to the palace tents behind us, ensuring no guards were nearby. Quiet. No opinions are secret behind cloth walls. I whispered. When he had settled, I continued. The people reconstructed their homes, restarted their lives, and began anew awaiting notice from their king of when they would travel again. When the nights grew longer and still the king kept them there, questions were asked about why. What of the desert's edge? Did he care no longer? 
But the question stopped when the king's wealth exploded. He had found it. Salt. No one understood how he acquired it. There was no salt mines here, and salt can't be found from the sand. Where did it come from? I paused, then whispered. It must have been magic, hidden in the watery heart of the oasis. Have you been there? Asher asked. I shook my head. Then I will tell you what lies in the oasis. I leaned in close, keen to hear. He took a deep breath and looked over his shoulders before he said, A salt mine! Laughing again, he planted his lips against my forehead. What else could it be? Magic is not real, ML. If your father has seemingly unlimited salt, it is from a mine. And if none are allowed in the oasis, surely that is what he hides. I replied, People have visited. Though, indignant at his rejection of magic, my brow was still warm from his kiss. They talk of palm fronds that glide, branches with thick leaves that brush together in the wind, a pool that sits in the shade. But I've heard no account of white burrows and trenches, nor of salt stacked in bricks. I saw the oasis when I arrived. Soldiers ensured I did not visit. Yes, only the king, his vizier, runners, and the villagers who collect our water are allowed. What do you think he protects if not a mine? I turned to him. Am I to finish? He lay in the sand and laced his fingers behind his head. I suppose. With my father's wealth came power, and the salt king, as he quickly became known, attracted traders from across the desert. In the footsteps of traders came foreign aristocrats who sought political alliances and protection that only the Salt King's wealth could buy. Royals brought their sisters and cousins and daughters, hoping to secure valuable connections. Soon, the king had seven, ten, eighteen wives, and the king was deemed the greatest and most formidable ruler the desert had ever seen the thread from which legends are woven. Daughters and sons were born and born again. With his sons, the Salt King created an army. With his daughters, the Salt King created a court. Our eyes met and he turned away. I said, In the dawn of his rule, brave nomads attacked the village, ambitious men who challenged the king, hoping to win his throne. No match for his scimitar, they were slain. Soon the desert learned to fear the king's soldiers and his mythic power. The last challenger was almost ten years ago. I barely remember it. I only remembered my fear as my father faced the stranger, the man whom Mama had warned me I must accept as ruler should the king fall. I continued. Princes, nobles, and even kings began flocking to the Salt King's court, looking to wed his daughters. The reputation of his power soon took second to that of his court, and more men sought to align themselves with the king, whose might brought armed men to his side and women to their knees. The man who from the sand of the desert found the salt of tears. Very impressive. 
he stacked his bare feet and wiggled his toes. Asher! He laughed quietly. Ah, forgive me. But I must admit, it pleases me to tease you. He leaned in. Plus, this story is quite theatrical, is it not? You tell it like a wizened elder. I harumphed and leaned back as he did. Can I ask you something? The question burning in my mind the entire evening fought to pour from my lips, but Hadia's warning to mind only Ahira matters echoed. Where exactly are you from? My father said east, but your accent, I have not heard. Very far east of here. Our settlement is much smaller than yours, but our oasis is much larger. Smug, he ran his fingers down his short beard. And anyone can visit any time they please. The hottest days, half the village is in its water, I swear it. Pulling his robe tight around me, I spun and found a place on the ground, lit softly by the filtered torchlight. What are you doing? Asher asked. I held my finger to my lips and beckoned to him. He came dutifully, sitting beside me. Whispering as I drew, I dragged my finger through the sand until I created the map I knew so well, the desert's salt trade, my home at the center of the routes. I pointed at the eastern lines and circles. Where? How do you know all this? He said it quietly, but I heard the surprise in his voice. Worry clenched in my gut. Had I gone too far? Revealed too much? He leaned over and with his finger drew a cross far along the eastern route, almost off my map. I asked him question after question, and he answered them all. Gold grows out the earth, it seems. We see so much, it's more plentiful than water. Yes, spices too. The sand is painted yellow and orange after caravans come through. The winds are stronger, though, and we often have to move our settlements from the paths of shifting dunes. He drew smaller crosses on and off the routes, telling me of oases near him. Despite his proclamation that his people had been all over the desert, he knew little other than the east, but it enthralled me all the same. Emel, he said tentatively. How does my home sound to you? It sounds much like mine, but smaller, as you said. Your oasis sounds nice. I mean, does my home sound like somewhere you would like to live? Fluttering erupted in my chest. It does. He smiled. Because I think I would like to take you there. To visit? No, not to visit. I have come to the Salt King's court to form an alliance with the king. I wanted more security for my family, my settlers, and our village. I hoped I would find a woman that fit in well with my wives. I did not expect I would... He stopped for a breath. This is unorthodox. I know I should seek permission first from your father, but I would like to take you home with me as my wife. I stared at him, disbelieving what I heard. 
Triumph swelled in my chest, and my hopes flew to the flames. No, I realized. Not to fire. To a promise of something good. To sanctuary. A cool hollow filled with water underneath shady trees. I would like that very much. A wide smile stretched across my face. He took my hand into his again, and looking into my eyes, he said, Let me take you home to your sisters. Find sleep at their side. On my third evening, I will call you to me once again. Only that time, if your father allows it, it will be forever. I did not walk home. I floated. And it was not because of the burak. Back already? Rahima whispered groggily. Emma, it's almost morning. Go back to sleep, I said, beaming, my cheeks aching. Silently, I reached under my mat and collected my preciously guarded jar of ink and hollow reed and unrolled an equally well-protected parchment. In the gray dawn light, I could see just enough. I dipped the reed into the ink. Along the eastern trade route, I drew a tree with small waves beside it. Nestled beside the tree, I wrote a curving A. I stared down at the map, following the trade routes that led to my home at the center. I looked at the marks where I had drawn the homes of other suitors, where an eye was drawn in with a younger girl's hand, the settlement of my mother. My gaze traveled to the edges of my map, and I frowned at the blank spaces. What else was there? Was it endless, as Asher said? His people had spent their entire lives on camelback. Maybe I would travel with them, too. The ink dried, and I tucked everything under my mat again, along with the small leather sack filled with salt. I stuffed a twisted blanket beneath my head. Rahima's hand reached for me in her sleep. I clasped it in my own, knowing that it would be one of the last times I held it. Bringing her soft knuckles to my lips, I thought of saying goodbye to my sisters, to Hadia, to Mama. Tears stung my eyes. But then I imagined my hand clasped around Asher's as we traveled back to his home, and the tears fell in relief. Finally, my time had come. I awoke to murmuring sisters and the buzz of the palace, Roosters singing at the sun, servants sending their children off to the market and greeting each other in the lanes, the clang of metal against metal as iron was forged. A ceramic jug of sweetened sage tea sat beside my mat, along with a plate with a large piece of flatbread. Sitting up, I pulled the food and drink to my lap. Rahima saw me rise and came over. Tell me, she said eagerly. I did not want them to know. Not yet. So I sipped the tea to hide my joy. He was quite kind. I gestured to the food and drink. Thank you. Rahima stared expectantly. He did not hurt me, since I know you will ask. We talked at length. He told me of his home, and I told him of ours. Other wives? Two, I added conspiratorially. Though you wouldn't know. Rahima giggled, and I wormed at the sound. Do you think he will request you again? Her eyebrows soared up her forehead. 
the suitor could use his three knights in the court how he pleased. Would the same Ahira, a different one, or sleep alone? I looked down at my hands, remembering both my father's threat and Asher's promise. I don't know. You liked him! I did. I picked at my bread. He seemed a good man, and more importantly, he was going to be my escape from the palace. Then we can have hope. Just as I was at her age, she was optimistic, seeing only the glistening promise of love. Though Rahima was born six years after me to a different mother, I was fiercely protective of her. She dreamed of becoming a wife and making our father proud. She would spend afternoons describing the embroidery and embellishments of her wedding veil, how she would dance for her husband the first night in his home, how she would oblige him. They were not my same dreams, but they were what made her happy. I knew that Rahima's sincerity and innocence would soon get her married, and I feared not being here to see the man who chose her. How is Mama? Tavi sat beside me, immediately taking my hair in her hands, brushing it through with her fingers until it was soft. Sabra lingered, watching, wanting to hear about our mother, too. She was worried about me, about all of us. I looked at my sisters. She wants us to be wed, of course. Sabra scoffed. Doubt she thought of me once. Tavi and Sabra were my full sisters. We had one full brother, a soldier now who we saw infrequently. Sabra had the misfortune of inheriting most of her features and personality from our father. Very few suitors requested her, and those that did had not found that which they sought. If she received no proposal by the first day of her 23rd year, she would be banished. With each day that passed, she grew more bitter, angrier, and as desperate as the desert before rain, Tavi was the only one who could stand to be around her. Don't say that, Tavi said, dropping my hair and turning to Sabra. Mama wants the same for you that she wants for all of us. She's given up on me, but not Emel. No, never the beautiful Emel. When is the last time she came to see me? Sabra said it as if that proved everything. I picked at my nails. This happened every time Mama was mentioned. I was the favorite because I was the most beautiful, and Mama loved Tavi because she was the youngest and still had promise. But oh, how Mama didn't care about Sabra. When is the last time you went to see her? I said, unable to resist. Sons, Sabra. I go to her all the time. She does not love me more. I just see her more often. If you want to wait around for whatever your impossible expectation is, then do it. But don't complain, Tavi said a little too brightly. Why don't we go to her together? Later today? After midday meal, eh? There was silence as Sabra and I glared at each other. Spending my limited time with Sabra was the last thing I wanted to do. But my older sister nodded and said, Mama would like that. My shoulders dropped. If she agreed, then I had no choice. That sounds nice, Tavi. Tavi combed through my hair again, happiness weaving through her words like her fingers through my hair. This will be great. Mama will love seeing all of us together. I began picking at my fingers again. Rahima reached over and used her hand to separate mine. 
So, tell me, Rahima pressed quietly, what did you wear? Grateful for the change in direction, I told my sisters, whose dewy faces had turned toward me. Oh, that one is my favorite, one exclaimed as I shared details of the outfit Hadia had chosen for me. Emerald pales you, Sabra said from across the room. She pretended to fuss with her weaving threads, but her eyes kept flicking up to mine, and her mouth murmured words I could not hear. Tavi exhaled. Well, I certainly think Asher will propose, Rahima announced, clapping her hands together. We will see, I said, still scowling at Sabra. I took a long drink of the sage tea, trying to rekindle the excitement I had felt moments before. It did not take much, as I realized that by leaving the palace, I would also be leaving Sabra. Bless Arab for the gift of Asher. Chapter 3 The midday horn's low blare sounded through the settlement. Some of my sisters rose to go to the Rama, sun-scorched sand in the palace, where they could pray to Arab. The longer they held their palms and brow to the ground, the more likely the god will hear their prayers. How about praying? Tavi said loudly to the backs of the Ahidan that exited the tent. For our damn meal! I hope whoever's bringing our food doesn't stop to gossip on the way. She should know I'm starved after someone. She peered pointedly at one of the girl's backs. Ate more than her share this morning. I hope Asha requests you again tonight, Rahima said as she splashed her face with the browned basin water. It needed to be thrown out, but we would keep that basin until the air had sucked it dry. Then, maybe, we'd get another bowl of fresh water to clean. Our father's small charity for being a Nahira was the luxurious baths we received before the suitor. He said he might wait until the third night before he makes a decision, I said. Rahima appeared so stricken by the notion, I changed the subject. A caravan arrives today, so maybe the attendant will tell us of a new Mohammed, eh? You could have your chance. Rahima gazed dreamily at nothing a lazy smile playing on her lips. Tavi groaned. Hope not. I want to eat until I look like I'm with child. She held her hands before her belly. No chains are fitting around my waist tonight, if we're to go to court. The tent entrance was peeled open. A young woman peered in. Nothing, girls. Arab answered my prayers. Tavi rubbed her palms together. Let there be stacks of bread so tall they're charred by the sun. She turned to me. Wait, Emel, let's eat first. Then we can go see Mama. Already standing, I had retrieved my sack of salt and was moving to get dressed, having forgotten my promise to Tavi and Sabra. Oh, I hesitated. So eager to please Tavi, I wasn't thinking when I agreed earlier. See... I forgot about the caravan. Tavi narrowed her eyes. It won't take long, she lowered her voice. And it's a chance to mend things for all of us. She did not need to say before Sabra is gone forever. Holding the leather sack firmly in my hand, I grimaced. Caravan, Tavi, you know I can't miss it. 
A caravan's arrival was one of the biggest events in the settlement, and I loved seeing the people and the things they carried from other parts of the desert. Yes, just a caravan, Tavi said. She understood nothing about it. She did not have the courage to leave the palace. There will be more. She did not know that Asher had promised to propose, and I did not want to tell her. I did not want any of them to know until we had my father's approval. So, how did I tell her there wouldn't be more? It would be one of the last times I saw our settlement that I saw Firuz. Shaking my head, I pleaded with Tavi. I have to go. I'm sorry. We'll go when I get back, eh? What kind of example do you think you're setting for our sisters? Sabra said from behind me. They look up to you, and you run off at every opportunity. What are you teaching them? To run from their problems? From their family? I pressed my fingers against my temples. Does everything have to be a fight? Sabra leaned in so Tavi wouldn't hear. When I am gone, you are the only thing she will have. Tavi couldn't bear hearing about Sabra's impending banishment. Mama isn't dead, I spat. She'll have her too. Don't forget about Tavi when you're chasing whatever it is you seek. Tavi interrupted a little too brightly. It's actually fine. Today probably wasn't the best day. We'll go tomorrow. When an attendant brought our midday meal, Sabra left me to join Tavi, who eagerly grasped a handful of dried dates, babbling about how she would want to nap after the meal anyway, and really, there just wasn't enough time to see Mama that afternoon. I swallowed my guilt. At the bottom of a basket I shared with Rahima, I found my servants Abaya and Veil. They were plain, no fancy embellishments nor rich colors, and would allow me to sneak from the palace without suspicion. Don't you want to eat first? Tavi asked as she spat a date seed into her palm. Rahima grasped my ankle. Stay for a bit. We can finish our game. She and a few other sisters had begun a new game of cards, and though I wanted to revisit my win, market day was far too alluring. Can't miss anything, I said, shaking the sand out of my clothes, already thrilling at the prospect of the bazaar. My fustan was too long for me, so I used my leather belt to hold it up from the ground so none of the bright edges could be seen beneath the abaya's hem. I dressed until I was covered from my hair to the tops of my feet, taking care that I tied my scarf to adequately protect me from the sun and to conceal my face. See if you can find me a handsome and rich merchant while you're out. These noblemen are overvalued, Pinar said, staring down at her cards then put her finger on her chin as she considered something. I think I'd prefer rich over handsome, you see, just in case you've a few to choose from. My worn sandals slid easily onto my feet. I will tell him of your erotic prowess, and he will come bursting through our tent to steal you away. I clasped the salt tightly in my palm. Tell him I'm a virgin. He'll come sooner. It was almost always the same two men who guarded our home during the day and the same two who were there at night. Stepping out of the tent, I glanced at Yael and Alim. Blessings of Arab brothers. It was our signal. 
Perhaps it was because they actually knew us, standing by our tent for years, hearing our hopes and sufferings. But aside from my full brother, they were the only two of the king's men who were kind to us. And of Wahir, Ya'el replied, nodding his head and holding out his hand. To anyone who saw, it looked like a simple greeting, but quickly I pressed my leather pouch into his palm. The salt was a small bribe when split between the two, but it was enough for each to bring home several decent meals to their families. It was worth it. Fussing with my sleeves, I let Yael stride ahead of me. Then I followed. He walked quickly, and I felt my tucked dress slipping from beneath my belt. I clasped the fabric at my waist tightly, praying it would hold until I found somewhere to better secure it. We walked along the sandy lanes, then through the rings of tents. The less vital the person or task, the further they'd be on the periphery. Finally, we reached one of the two entries into the palace, the servants' access. It was heavily guarded, the men fervently questioning those entering and leaving, inspecting the wares they were bringing to and from. But it was also congested on caravan days, so I would slip through easily, especially with the help of Yael. He approached the cluster of the soldiers, all identifiable as king's men with palace white rutras tucked around their faces and camel wool secured around their crown, and pointed at me. He muttered something about king's business, and they waved me through. All the servants were similar in their plain coverings, arms curved forward, eyes downcast. I mirrored them and followed four men carrying baskets of goods to sell at the market. Suddenly, the basket slipped from one man's arm, spilling glass beads all over the sand. The camel being led into the palace startled at the commotion, and the people clamored, moving to get out of its way. Distracted by the chaos and eager to slip through, I ran into the man in front of me, stumbling backward. And then I felt my fustan slip from the belt. Glancing down, I saw the green sparkling with golden thread from beneath my abaya, drawing the attention of any who was looking at the ground, which was everyone as they stepped over the spilled goods. Stop! A guard shouted. I didn't turn, taking quicker steps through the people. Just let me get through. Stop, slave! He yelled again. Glancing back, I saw him approaching me quickly, his hand outstretched. My breath was hot against my cheeks. Sweat dripped down my neck. No, no, no! Abruptly, Yael stumbled into the guard. Forgive me, brother, he said, wiping at the guard's pristine tunic. He moved swiftly so that he stood between me and the approaching man. This is much too chaotic. Help me get this cleared up. Everyone stay calm, Yael shouted, spreading his arms wide so that one was on the guard's chest and the other was shooing me toward the village. Those leaving... Go now so that we can clear the space. I did not waste the opportunity. I fled. The first time I decided to leave the palace was four years ago. I learned a banished Ahira had died, and the news came at the heels of another rejection by a Mohammi. My mind spun with my fate, and I was nauseous with its lack of promise. Would I follow in the footsteps of my dead half-sister? I could not stay another moment idling with the other Ahiran or wandering through the kitchens or praying to a deaf god at the Rama. That leaving the palace was forbidden by our father mattered little to me. The prospect of change was alluring, and the freedom became addicting. 
the consequences of being caught became more immaterial with each uneventful outing. Whenever I had the salt, I would leave the palace on caravan day. There was nothing that thrilled me more than seeing the rest of the world brought to our home. Traders from across the desert traveled far to reach our settlement with their hundreds of camels, brimming bags, and stuffed vats hanging from the animals' strong backs. The people would heave them to the bazaar, and the whole settlement would flock to hear impossible stories, savor delicious food, and collect magical treasures. After a day or two, the traders left with heavy pockets that clinked from coin, da and fid and nab, and more importantly, slabs of salt teetering on their camel's humps. Since the salt king's rise to power, my settlement was the only place people came for salt. Old salt mines were lost to the wind that filled them with sand, so the movement of the desert, the routes of trade, all were oriented around my home. It had to be. People needed salt to live. The sun blistered against my back, and I delighted in it. Outside of the palace, I was grounded, like a clay doll cut from strings. I found a secluded niche between two tents and adjusted my fustan until it was better secured. Then, I went to the bazaar. In my excitement to reach the marketplace, I nearly ran, weaving through villagers, anonymous in my plain clothes. Imagining that this would be what life was like with Asher, I giggled, ecstatic with the freedom that was soon to be mine forever. Twangy strums of the oud and the percussion of the bendir reached me before I saw the bazaar. When I turned into the marketplace, the winding labyrinth of tents, I stopped and stared, giddy with its pulsing energy. People pushed past me, rushing to their favorite shops, finding the rare spice or treasured gift or even relative from afar. I fell in line behind them, joining the swarm of the market. The chaotic chatter of shopgoers rang in my ears. From the tents, men and women yelled to the shoppers, calling for their attention. Those who did not arrive early enough to snag a tent stood in the middle of the lanes, rushing to people to shove exorbitantly priced jewels onto their wrists or a shining reflecting glass before their eyes. A woman sang a heartbreaking love song down the lane from a man who sang of Masira's capriciousness, street performers competing for coin. Barterers clamored as goods were exchanged and wafting through the lanes was the aroma of roasted meats, spices, and scented waxes and oils. Hurriedly, I navigated through the market until finally I found the shop for which I searched. Sitting on a large blanket under a threadbare tent was a man not much older than me. His gaze flicked through the people passing by, following each for a few steps before looking to the next. I tutted at his dishevelment. Could he not even dress up for market day? Cloak on the ground behind him, tunic untucked from his sash, turban unwound beside his bare feet— his mother would be horrified. Thank Arab she stayed home to take care of her young children. Spare a drink for a poor girl, I said as I approached, nodding to the nearly empty drum of opaque, milky liquid. He placed his hand protectively over his goods as he surveyed me with a skeptical frown. Then the tension eased in his face. Emel? Of course, you fool. He broke into a wide grin, his joy at seeing me mirroring mine. Firuz was my best friend, my only friend. Come and sit, 
He scooted aside and ladled the liquid into a small bowl for me. I sat beside him. Thank you. I carefully lifted my veil and took a swift drink of coconut juice. It was almost cool and deliciously sweet. I closed my eyes as it ran down my throat. You're almost out? He nodded. It's been a good day. I just need to sell a bit more for Ma, then we can go. They're from the north, he grinned knowingly at me. I know. Have you seen Rafal yet? Not yet, but people are already talking. He filled a man's goatskin for a handful of copper nab. So, the rumors you met with the Prince Asher last night, true then. How you hear of these things so quickly baffles me. Those in the palace like to talk. I swirled the drink in my hand, watching white flecks spin. What was he like? Was his snake long? You brute! I met Firuz a few years ago when Yael walked with me into the village. He worried about my safety outside the palace, so he introduced me to his friend. If trouble found me, I was to seek out Firuz. We had been friends since, and there was nothing in my heart that he did not know. Tell me he lasted longer than that other guy. Firuz's shoulders shook with silent laughter. Firu, I said sharply, my face hot. I am not talking about this with... Two guards, with bright white uniforms gleaming in the afternoon sun, turned down the lane. I scooted back and discreetly adjusted my scarf so it hung lower over my eyes. Firuz saw them too and shifted so that he was close to my side. He took my hand in his. They stopped in front of Firuz's shop. I stared at their feet, clutching Firuz's hand tightly. My heart pounded against my chest, and I worried they could hear my terror. Arab has blessed us, Firuz exclaimed at their arrival, his voice brightening as he transformed from my friend into a salesman. He pulled my hand up to his mouth to kiss my knuckles. My love, the king's men desire our goods, he turned back to the guards. These coconuts were from a settlement afar and saturated by Arab's blazing sun. I cut the fruit myself at dawn, and my wife here poured them while singing Arab's prayers. I bowed my head more deeply, further hiding my face. Fill two, one said as he handed Firuz their goat skins. I did not recognize his voice. How will you pay, my fearless soldiers? You bravely protect my wife and our magnificent king, so I will only find ease if I give you a deal. No one will beat my price. Though blood roared in my ears, my lips quirked at his ridiculous exclamations. The men pulled their pouches from their belts, coins jingling. We've salt in coin, the other guard said. Few paid in salt. Though my father's palace contained piles of it, the rest of the settlement was poor. Through the guards' spending, salt was dispersed through the settlement in small quantities, most people choosing to use it in their meals or to preserve their meat. For some, acquiring salt was an obsession. They were the salt chasers. Firuz lowered his voice and leaned into them, never letting go of my hand. For both, now tell no one I've given you this deal, I will take one palm full of salt or ten fid. I nearly choked. Either price was outrageous. I will not hear your thanks. Firuz carried on, shaking his head gravely. 
The guards grunted in agreement. There was an exchange, and they walked away. Firuz chuckled, cupping the silver coins in his hand. Ma will be happy with this. I scooted away from him. Can you imagine me as a husband? Firuz said, suddenly concerned by the prospect. Not for a moment, but you played your part well. You're a skilled peddler, though. Saturated by Arab's blazing sun? Where did you come up with this? We declared more and more ridiculous things Arab did to the coconuts prior to them being cracked for juice, some more salacious than others. Firuz grew serious. Will he propose? There was worry in his voice. Maybe. I did not hide the hope from my voice well. I stared fixedly at the people who passed. He whipped his head to me. Do you think? I nodded, and when I saw Fidu's face, I wished I had said nothing. Oh, that will be great if you liked him. Was he all right? Nodding, I could only think of leaving Firuz, and the ache in my chest was much too great. He glanced at me and shook his head. Don't, Emel. This is great news. You deserve it. Really, you do. I am very happy for you. It sounded more and more as if he were trying to convince himself. Good. He clapped his hands together. Well, I've sold enough. He poured what remained in the large bowl into his goatskin and then into the small bowl I'd emptied earlier. I finished that one too. He rolled up the blanket we had been sitting on. He would leave his empty tent behind and claim it again once the traders had left. Using well-worn rope, he slung his entire shop onto his back. Already a woman with a small basket of iron spearheads, finely honed, was shuffling in to take his place. The crowd was densely packed when we arrived, and excited gulps of air filled my stomach when I saw Rafal standing at the center of it all. Firuz grabbed my hand and we pushed through the people to get closer. Atop a large basin turned on its head, Rafal stood in all his enchanting splendor, a bright green tunic over red and white serwal, golden chains from his neck, and an indigo turban upon his head. With sparkling eyes wide, he surveyed the spectators and danced his fingers through the air, telling his story. Beside him, sitting on a sun-dulled cushion, was his friend. I did not know his name, but he was always there, tapping his darbuka to dramatize Rafal's stories. His stories. That was why people went to Rafal. None knew the desert like he did. And there were trees as high as the Salt King's palace, with tiny animals that swung through them eating from their branches. One picked up my bausel. He held up his dulled silver wayfinder, and I squinted, trying to see where its spinning hand pointed right then. And banged it on my head. The crowd gasped and laughed. The friend happily percussed along with the laughter. I had heard this story of his travels to the south, but still, I felt as though every word was new. He barely finished his tale before people began calling for their favorites again. Request after request shouted at him. The oasis with no water, the dunes that shifted only in the night, the salt mine guarded by jinn. I remembered last night with Asher and my map empty to the north. But what about you? I called. 
What of where you come? He never told stories of the North. It is like here, he shrugged. How far north have you been? I said over the muttering voices that grew bored. He pivoted on his heel and swirled to face me, eyes fixing on mine. He smiled slowly, teeth opalescent, behind his mustache. You wouldn't believe it if I told you, he said. The people disputed, the excitement growing again, and they begged that he share. Okay, okay, he held up his hands in defeat. But you must listen close, for I will tell this only once. Everyone hushed. The friend rolled his fingers along the drum. It is an inhospitable place, he looked into the swarm of tent peaks. I have been once and will never return. He leaned over the crowd that stood beneath his hands. I am referring, of course, of the desert's edge. My mouth dropped open, and Rafal looked right at me with an eyebrow raised, daring me to believe. A man standing in front shouted, Lies! Another called, It isn't real. Rafal shook his head. It is. He pointed behind him with his basil, the little arm directing north. Travel for forty days that way, but be careful that you navigate closely. He draped the basil over our heads. If you miss one oasis, Masira's death birds will feast upon your flesh. Go as far as your camel will take you until you hit the rocks, sharp cliffs, navigable only with foot and rope and faith. He paused, and the friend pattered away. It takes the length of the day to descend the rock cliffs, and then, after two days on foot, you'll reach it. You've not been, a woman shouted. It's impossible. Another woman chimed in. No man can carry enough water on his back for a foot journey like that. Rafal's lip twitched in amusement, but he ignored them. There, the rocks sparkle like they're encrusted with diamonds, salt shining in the sun. And there, too, is the grave of a city. Buildings colored like beautifully feathered birds have been torn apart by the hands of Arab. They lie in pieces, half buried in the sand. I said, but where does the sand end? What is at the edge? Is there magic like the stories say? Magic, maybe, but I found none. At the edge, I found water so angry it roared. It was as wide as the horizon's mouth. His eyes grew misty before he blinked it away. I believed none of it. He stepped off of his stage. That is all for today. If I tell you more, I will never see you again. If the price is right, his eyes darted down to his stage toward the basin his friend was turning over. Tomorrow, I will be back to share more. I nudged Firuz, and he grudgingly tossed two fid into the basin. Others followed. You have to come tomorrow, I told him as we dispersed with the rest of the crowd. Remember everything he says. That way I can... Yes, yes, your map, Fidu said. I know. Why don't you run off and ask Rafal to fill in the rest, eh?
The bright green of Rafal's tunic grew distant as he walked away. Even if I had the courage to ask him more, I feared mentioning my map. What if he wanted it back? Years ago, after the first time I saw him tell his tales, Rafal had dropped his sack as he was packing to leave, spilling rolls of parchment onto the ground. All was returned to its place except the one that had fallen just beside my foot, hidden beneath the hem of my abaya. It was the first map I had ever seen, and though it was more parchment than ink, I treasured it. He had not finished it, empty as it was, so I decided that I would take on the task. It was my obsession. Rumor is that a prince arrived with a caravan today, likely seeking an alliance with the king, Fidus said as we walked through the congested paths. Fidus's business with traders provided him ample opportunity for discussion with the travelers on the road. It's strange, though. They don't usually arrive with the caravan. They're wealthy enough to come privately escorted, hire their own runners. Runners went ahead of the caravans to scout the oases, retrieve water to bring back to their crew, and receive approval to come into the settlement. Nasser met the runners at the oasis to see if they were bringing goods worthy enough to trade and to grant them allowance to access the oasis for water. If it was a Mohammi, he'd send word that the palace need prepare for a guest. Yes, I said distantly, staring at my reflection in a polished copper vase. One of the nomads said he and his men kept to themselves for the journey, paying handsomely but speaking to none. Seems strange. Silk adorned with thick bronze thread sat in waves upon a smooth wooden table. A challenger to the throne, surely, I said absently, fingering the soft material, cold in the shade of the tent. It's what I fear. Fido, I said incredulously, the allure of the goods vanishing like an Ahira's frown. There hasn't been one in years. It is probably two dozen princes coming to snatch up every one of my sisters. I will be the only one left, and I will lay around in my tent by my lonesome, withered and pale like a sick goat. Mohammies will poke sticks at me to see if I stir. He grunted, indignant, and waved his finger at me. You'll see. I've got a feeling about this. A platter of shining desserts with sticky red filling caught my eye. My stomach grumbled and I rubbed my hand across my middle. We exited the bazaar, still surging with feverish frenzy, and Firuz set down his things to adjust the sash around his hips and tie his turban. You'll join me for a meal, then? Firuz asked. The sun began to sink behind the tents. Only if you're paying. I smirked as I helped him with his turban, smoothing the folds. Firuz knew I gave all of my salt to bribe my way out of the palace. Today, I'm wealthier than Asher. He bounced on his sandy toes, and the many coins in his pockets clinked together. I bowed. Then, your highness, I accept your proposal. We walked toward Firuz's home, the lanterns and cooking fires brightening the lanes at twilight. He called out to his mother when we arrived that he would not be home for dinner. She hustled out of the tent, clucking disapprovingly until she saw me standing beside him. She stopped and smiled before she hugged him, then slapped his shoulder. Who is your friend? Invite her in, you disgusting brute! 
Though I had met her several times, I knew Firuz had many friends. She would not remember me. Ma, he said, rubbing his shoulder. She's in a rush, and we must get going. I will be back before the stars are bright. He kissed her cheek before depositing the basket at her feet and dropping three quarters of the day's earnings into her waiting palms, taking extra care with the salt. Firuz grabbed my hand and we walked away. His mother watched us go, affectionate hope in her eyes. You are cruel, I whispered to him. No, no, it is a kindness. She wants me to wed, but we know that will never happen. He squeezed my hand. Let her have these few moments of hope. They give her happiness. She will only be disappointed. When out of his mother's sight, our hands fell back to our sides. Perhaps you should leave with the caravan, find a Scylla out in the desert. Firuz laughed uneasily. I've already found one. Gasping, I smacked him like his mother had. I am no demon. Though, truthfully, I wouldn't mind the shape-shifting powers, eh? I turn into a guard and strut out of the palace with my chest puffed, yelling for no reason at all. We turned into a small tent. A placard strung beside the entry read, Food. The cramped space had three low tables with cushions scattered near. We were the only two inside. Firuz called out, and soon a woman, as wide as she was tall, stepped in from the back. The smell of smoked lamb streamed in behind her. Two meals? She asked, stepping toward us with a cheery face framed by wild hair. Firuz nodded. She grabbed two chipped ceramic cups and roughly placed them on the table we stood beside. She filled them each with tepid tea before stepping out, rattling off instructions to a poor soul working the fire. This is pleasant, I looked around the small space. It is. They're very discreet, he nodded toward the closed entrance providing privacy for the patrons. We can stay here to eat if you like, but I figured you'd want to go to our usual. How'd you find this place? Before he could respond, the woman returned with two small sacks that Firuz would return when emptied in exchange for a few extra nab. Oil dripped through the fabric. Firuz set a single golden da on the table and collected our dinner. The scent of roasted meat and flatbread made my mouth water. We walked up to the village edge, squeezing between two homes until we faced the open desert. Well away from the ears of the people in their homes, we sat in the sand, still warm from the day. My eyes traveled along the dunes that never shifted. Like Asher's, most settlements had to move their homes regularly to avoid the dunes swallowing their tents, the wind pushing the sandy hills on their ravenous path. But the dunes never came close to us. We were lucky. The caravan's camels, dozens and dozens of them, were off in the distance, specks of humped black. Their water was already filled, waiting to carry on their journey in the coming days. There was a huddle of trees not far in the distance. One of the king's men led a small group of camels to it, each carrying enormous barrels between their humps. They would return to the village after filling them with water from its pool that never emptied. The oasis, I whispered, remembering how Asher described his oasis when we watched the horizon as Firuz and I did now. I couldn't wait to see the pool that was so large, half his people could sit inside. I'll race you to there, 
Firuz said as I sat beside him. He handed me my food and reached into his own bag using a piece of the bread. He pulled out roasted lamb with globs of yellow millet stuck to it. I would run like the wind, I said. Sons, it would be a dream to sprint through the sand. If guards weren't lining the perimeter of the settlement, I might have. What do you think it's like? Firuz asked through a mouthful of food. I untied my veil. The air touching my sweaty face felt cold. I closed my eyes. Cool. Quiet. Sounds perfect, he murmured, then hesitated before asking. Would you run away? If you could? There was pity in the depths of his eyes. I took a bite of food. Once, I might have said yes, but now, with Asher, the answer was no. I would wait for him, for my future, to take me away. Of course not. I tried to laugh, but the sound was wrong. The bread turned into mush between my fingers. Firuz wouldn't understand Asher. He wouldn't understand how different he was, nor how he was the best thing for me. I couldn't run away. Where would I go? How would I survive? And anyway, why would I run away? My family is here, you are here. My voice was flat, emotionless. My family was here. Firuz was here. And I would be leaving. The twisted ache in my chest clenched down. I would, he said quietly. Can't you? I said after a pause. Can't you go with the caravan? I have asked already, he said. My stomach dropped. No, I did not want to lose Firuz to the north. I would never see him again. Selfish, I knew it was, but I wanted him where I knew I could find him, where I could return happy and soft in the middle, with beautiful children and a husband who said yes, we will travel to your home together to see your family and your friends. Firuz continued. But they want a quarter brick of salt, or eighty da, an impossible price. I thought of the salt bricks that lay stacked in my father's palace. Firuz let out a long breath. When he looked back at the horizon, I turned to him. His brow was furrowed, his shoulders hunched forward. I wanted to ask him if everything was okay, if he was happy at home. But I didn't dare. If there was something wrong, knowledge of it was a load I could not bear. I leaned over to him, my shoulder touching his hand, and whispered, His snake was long, but he didn't have the stamina. A loud guffaw burst from him, breaking the melancholy silence. We ate our food quickly. Rarely did I eat meals as delicious and abundant. I consumed everything with fervor, Firuz making fun of my eagerness. Thank you for this, I said as I gestured to the empty sack of food and the desert. You are always welcome. He reached over and clasped my shoulder. Since you've decided not to race me, I suppose I should take you home. The sun dipped out of sight and only its muddy trails of orange remained in the sky. I looked at the desert once more before we turned into the village. Was north that way? 
I squinted, trying to see if there was angry water where the sky met the land. I saw nothing. Walking toward the palace, the smoke from fires wafted in the air as meals were cooked. Laughter and chatter of villagers mixed with the brays and neighs of animals. Near the palace, we found a small, secluded space. A stray chicken pecking through the sand ran away at our arrival, clucking and spreading its wings in indignation at the interruption. Take care these next few days, Firuz said. There is no threat, you know that. I will be fine. I waved him off, but he was so intent that I grew uneasy. If it will make you feel better, I promise I will be careful. We grasped each other in a long hug. Oh, and Emil, he said as he pulled away. If he... If you... Come see me once more before you leave. I promise. I squeezed his hands in mine. Find peace in the shadow of Arab's son. Discreetly, I waited by the servant's access, leaning against the sturdy date palm fence. I was growing impatient as one or two servants approached at a time, worried that I would not have the opportunity to sneak in. It was the risk I took when I returned home late. Finally, a cluster of empty-handed servants strode up, having sold all their goods at the market. I fell in with them, and after questioning the few at the front of the group, the guards waved us in. When I approached my home, I was surprised to find a third guard standing with the night watch. Yael? I asked, reaching out my hand. What are you doing here? You should be home. I could just as easily collect my leather sack from him tomorrow. Swiftly, he took my hand in his, returning the sack to my palm, and mumbled, It was growing late, so I almost left, but... I wanted you to know a new suitor comes soon. Even if the Ahiran aren't requested tomorrow, it's best to stay here the coming days. It was a strange warning, and Firuz's caution echoed in my mind. Chapter 4 The king summoned us to midday court two days later. The ominous words of Yael and Firuz had at first worried me, but the days that followed were ordinary, and the summons was typical for a Mahami. We were prepared in the Zafif, and the guards escorted us to the king, smelling like crushed roses and looking like freshly plucked petals. The courtings took place in the smaller receiving tents, where ample plush seating was scattered throughout the room for the Ahiran to drape ourselves. When we were instead directed to our father's tents, to where he sat upon his throne, a ripple of bewilderment passed through us. My sisters mumbling about who was so important, we'd meet them in such a formal setting. Asher isn't going to propose then, Sabra said coolly as we walked. The teeth sank and her poison spread through me. Though I told myself he was a man of his word, that there was no reason father would dissent, that we would surely be wed. Her words fueled my doubt. She was right, and I hated it. It was nearly the third evening, and his time was almost at an end. If he had not done it already, there was no chance to ask my father to have me if a new suitor was here. There would be no proposal. You'll be like me, Sabra continued, falsely bright. We can live in squalor together. Fingers slid through mine. 
Rahima had dropped back to walk beside me. Don't listen, she mouthed, squeezing my hand. The guard held open the entrance to the throne room, and we filed into the room one by one. Each sister who entered before turned back to me with a wide smile on her face. My heart frenzied in my chest. What was I walking into? Did I dare hope? No, it was impossible. Proposals did not happen before all of the Ahiran, and they certainly did not occur in the throne room. It was a transaction, not a ceremony. But when I saw Ashir standing beside my father's throne, resplendent in saffron robes, the ground seemed to shift from under me. His eyes met mine, and he nodded just once before his face split into an enormous smile, like the tipping of a goblet of sun between clouds. It was happening. It was really happening. My time as an Ahira was done. My vision hazed with tears, and I raised a shaking hand to my mouth to hide my disbelieving smile. Sabra stormed past me to join my sisters bowing before the king. I hurried to mirror their movements, finding it impossible to tear my gaze from Asher's. Forehead to the ground, my mind raced with colliding thoughts of self-doubt and excitement. When would I leave with him? Why were we all summoned? This was unusual. What if he was choosing a different sister? But no, he smiled at me. Would I have time to say goodbye to Mama? To Emma? To Tavi? Firuz? Daughters, stand, the king said sloppily. I've joyous news. I stared at the carpet beneath my feet, following the path of a pale, brown spider as it disappeared between two of the rugs. Little spider, I will be as free as you. The Prince Asher has chosen a bride. Rahima's hand pressed soothingly against my back, and I leaned against her. Small, constricted spasms ached my neck, as I fought a deluge of tears. My breath caught on the knot in my throat. Breathe, she whispered. The king continued. Asher, my friend, my soon son, step forward and claim your wife. My sisters and I were unmoving, like stones in the sand. I did not raise my eyes from the carpet. Soon, Yellow slippered feet emerged into my line of sight. They went still in front of me. I counted one, two, three, four, waiting to see if they would move on to someone else. They did not move, and I nearly fell to the ground in relief. Asher's finger lightly traced my jawline. He caught my chin and pulled my face up to meet his gaze. His brown eyes burned into mine. The smallest smile meant only for me, rested on his lips. Emel, Asher whispered, I will take you as my bride. He reached down and clasped my hand. A hysterical laugh fell from my lips as the dimming world suddenly was reignited, as if in flames. It was golden and beautiful. He chose me. He chose me. His hand was warm, and I held it tightly as a battle of emotions waged inside of me. Excitement, hope, pride, relief. 
All of the things I had been taught to feel, the things that I now truly felt, were like horses galloping through my chest. I was chosen. My mother would be joyous. My father, finally, would be proud. My life was like a newly woven carpet rolled out before me, and I saw it there with stunning detail, sharing wine with him as we ate, going to the market with his wives as we gossiped about the servants, visiting the oasis and submerging in the pooling water, walking through the desert with a camel's reins in my hand, seeing the world, the entire world. I bowed my head slowly, corralling the ecstatic dreams that launched up into the sky like birds taking flight. Masira has allowed me a great honor. But then I did it. I stumbled, thinking of everything I would leave behind, thinking only of the good, as always seems to happen when a goodbye looms near. My mother and sisters and Firuz. Was being a Nahida so bad? Was life in my father's palace truly so terrible? I shook my head, sending away the traitorous thoughts. Sons, what was I thinking? Asher was who Masira chose for me. After seven years and Nahira, this was my husband. For the rest of my life, this was my husband. My husband, my fate, my fortune, my freedom. I stared into his eyes, tugging back all the cloudy memories of the night I had lain with him. I did not linger on our drunken sex. Instead, I thought of when we had talked staring into the night, when he had been caring, sincere. He was a good man. He had chosen to be kind when he could have been anything else. So I let the fear go, and I clung to the pride. I was an Ahira no longer. I was to be a wife and princess. My smile stretched wide across my face. The torchlight glittered in Asher's eyes. Let us be wed, he said, and led me to my father. My chin lifted as we walked. I moved like a royal, like I had been trained. My sisters smiled around us, Rahima and Tavi and the others wiping their cheeks. In my excitement, I had forgotten their presence. Why had my sisters been called to witness his proposal? Though I could not make sense of it, I was so glad they were there to share in my happiness. My father slouched in his throne when he addressed us. May Arab bestow blessings onto you both. Asher, as part of this exchange, I give the strength of my army and the power of my renown to you. From your marriage to my daughter, your family will prosper and your people will thrive. Your union to my family will raise you up closer to the suns. His glassy eyes were unfocused, his tongue lolled in his mouth, lazy and fat with liquor. His words were thick, his pronouncements absurd. He was drunker than I had seen him in a long time. And I know that I can expect your loyalty and army's strength in return. My father set his glass trinket and goblet onto the table, stood slowly, and grasped Asher's shoulder. Then he turned to me, his eyes almost glistening. My dove, Arab has been kind and gifted you with a great fortune. 
Asher has been generous and gifted you with his kin, his home. Your union to this prince gives us pride and honors our gods. He reached out and caressed my knuckles with a pad of his thumb. I could not resist his words. Forgiveness and love and warmth for my father poured from my chest. I tasted salty tears on my lips. You will be wed tomorrow at the sun's peak. Arab will oversee the ceremony from his blazing throne. The king turned from us to my sisters. Now, daughters, you have not been summoned here only to witness Asher choose his bride. It was surreal gazing at the Ahiran as I stood beside Asher. I was separate from them, no longer one of them. Rahima beamed at me, her face wet, smile brilliant. Martin, come and see. The king spoke loudly, calling through the tents to someone far away. I tore my gaze from my sisters and searched the room, waiting for someone to appear. Was this the man Firuz and Yael spoke of? He continued, See how my daughters are the jewels of the desert, the gems of the sand. They are beautiful and obedient, and you will earn great honor if you claim one as your own. My daughters, I am pleased to tell you we have another suitor to welcome to our home. He has traveled from the deep north in search of a wife. I wondered how far north. The edge? If that were true, and if Rafal could be believed, he might be one of the most powerful men in the desert, perhaps wealthier than even my father. That would certainly explain why we had been called to the throne room to meet him. Martin, join us. The king clapped his hands wildly as we swiveled our heads from side to side. Asher pulled me close, tracing his fingers up and down the curve of my waist, making it clear to the new guest over whom he maintained ownership. I leaned into him, uncaring of his display, and he pressed his lips to my temple. Finally, there was a swishing of fabric, and my gaze fell on a man being escorted in by Nasser. His age surprised me. Suitors were generally younger. This man had more years than my father. He wore a dark blue rutra around his face and had loose gold and navy robes. Two long scimitars were fastened at his waist. His beard, more silver than black, was long, and his face held a look of cold cunning. His eyes pivoted from the king to all of us around him. The king rambled on, oblivious. Welcome, welcome. Nasser has told me much of your home, and I think you'll find my daughters will suit you nicely. Asher tensed, and so did I. There was something amiss with Martin. He walked stiffly with his arms curled forward, head bent low. He scanned the room rapidly as if searching or preparing. Nasser was oblivious, distracted by a torch whose fire had deadened. He went to a servant pointing at the offense, so he failed to notice Martin reaching for his belt. The Salt King was so drunk on Arak and pride that he babbled on, equally unaware. Martin spun as he unsheathed his scimitars, the sound of slicing metal ringing in the room. A garbled cry sounded, 
and the guard standing near Mateen clutched his throat, eyes wide, mouth agape. Blood poured through his fingers. He fell to the ground. And then everything seemed to happen in the span of a heartbeat. Chaos exploded. Screams ripped from the center of the room as my sisters saw the guard fall. They fled, disappearing from the room like snuffed flames. I turned into Asher, trying to pull him away as I stared at the horror before us. His eyes were wide as he took everything in, his hand reaching for his own scimitar. He shoved his arm in front of me and yelled, Run! Sons, I wanted to, but I was fixed with fear. The king bellowed for his guards with manic fervor, but he moved as though wading through honey. He dazedly spun around, pawing at his waist. Finally, he pulled his sword from his belt and waved it unthreateningly at Mateen, who turned toward the king. Where is it? Mateen screamed. Desperation was heavy in his voice. He strode toward the king, blades raised before him. A rush of foreign men dressed in blue and black joined the melee, attacking my father's soldiers. Swords clanged, men hollered and screamed. My father moved to retreat. Unsteady, he knocked his table as he turned, everything falling upon the rugs, clattering loudly. The sound broke my terror. We should leave. Come with me. I shrieked at Asher, pulling roughly at his hand. I can't. My duty is to your father. Go hide. I stared at him, horrified. Go! He screamed, pushing me away so that I fell onto my knees. Heart pounding, I scrambled behind the throne. I would not leave him. As if right next to me, another peal of swords rang out in the room. Peeking from behind the throne, I saw Asher parry Matin's attacks. No, I could barely breathe. I was horrified, stunned, and fascinated all at once. They were fighting right in front of the throne now. I could not flee as Matin was too close. With Asher's every stroke, I saw my future flicker. Now there, now gone. I turned away. I would not watch the fight. My spine was pressed to the back of my father's chair. My knees curled to my chest. My fingers clutched tightly around my shins. Where had my sisters gone? Were they running to safety or had Mateen's men found them too? Pressing my forehead to my knees, I prayed to Arab. Had I the salt, I would have given it all to smother flames if it meant Masira might listen and would protect Asher, my family. The king's guards streamed in with scimitars brandished and joined the fight. They cried and shouted as the battle swelled from two to nearly two dozen. Unable to resist the growing din, I glimpsed around the throne again and saw more men from Mateen's army. They slashed their swords through the air at my father's soldiers, my brothers and neighbors. Mateen had moved into the fray. He swirled his dual swords like a dancer, blades slicing into soft flesh. I did not see Asher. My father stood on the periphery, swinging his scimitar uselessly above him, shouting until he was purple in the face, with sweat dripping down his temples. He scanned the room, panicked. He seemed irritated with the men clustered tightly before him, shielding him from the fray with their beating hearts and soft flesh. A soldier now guarded my father's throne, preventing any of the invaders from getting to his fallen treasures, and the salt that sat behind it. He did not know he also guarded an Ahira. Red bloomed beneath robes. 
Men fell and swords entered sacred places, slithering between ribs, carving into abdomens, slicing pulsing vessels that coursed through cores. Fear and revulsion choked me. I wanted to run and find a real place to hide, but I knew these men would slay me as soon as they saw me. I was the daughter of the king they wanted dead. I was their enemy. There was no sense to what was happening. A man did not take the throne by catching the king off guard. It was against all honor, all tradition. This was the whole purpose for the ritual that allowed men to challenge the king so that such shameful betrayals need not happen. No one would respect a king who broke his opponent's trust as Matin had done. So what did he want? Firuza's warning emerged through my muddled thoughts, and suddenly, hysterical, I covered my mouth to stop from laughing aloud. Here I am, Firu, like I promised you, perfectly safe behind this royal chair. The tears of hysteria revived my fear, and I hugged my knees into my chest harder. I sat clenched like a fist until the sounds began to diminish. When my father's drunken cries were gone, I peered around the throne to see if I could find him. I held my breath, fear and hope waging their own war. But then I saw him being pulled from the tent by several of his guards. Though drunk and weak, Father tried resisting the men that tugged at him. He reached out toward the center of the room, toward his throne, but the young guards' sober strength outweighed their rulers, and they soon disappeared. There was little left of the battle. Men had fallen to the floor, daggers jutting from chests, abdomens, and trails spilled onto navy robes, and piles of salt were stained with the blood and ingesta of family and foe. I watched as one of my brothers thrust his sword into the neck of an enemy. The man's eyes bulged before his life was lost. He fell to the floor with a dull thud. None of Matin's soldiers remained. I did not know if they fled or if they were all slain. The remaining guards sprinted from the room either in pursuit or to secure the perimeter of the palace. A bell clanged. It was loud, frantic. More bells joined. Soon they rang through the settlement, creating a cacophony that rattled my spine, a warning for villagers to arm themselves and prepare for battle. My breaths came in quick bursts. My heart thudded wildly. Were more men coming? Were the fleeing soldiers running free in the village, killing needlessly? I sat still, my hands covering my ears, scared to move, scared to stay. After a moment, or days, I knew not which, the ringing ceased. A heavy silence swallowed me. Alone, I stood slowly, the muscles in my legs coiled and ready to spring should anyone come into the room. Dead men lay in piles atop the floor. Matin's men, my father's men. I gripped the throne tightly as I stared. Some might be my brothers, and now they lay dead, undignified and splayed. No prayer for deliverance spoken over their corpses. No keening cry from their mothers as their bloodied heads were cradled by the hands that raised them. Would they even be taken to the sands to be buried by the sky? I stepped soundlessly toward the slain. Their wounds demanded to be seen, and my eyes kept falling on the mangled flesh. 
The metallic twang of blood and fetid smell of vacated bowels was strong. Bile rose. I covered my nose, averted my gaze, looking instead to the men's, the boys' faces. Who were they? Their lifeless eyes told me nothing. Mateen was sprawled atop others, unmoving, heart beating no longer. I sat upon the ground, relief coursing through me, and stared at the man who had caused so much pain. A large sword was pinned to his abdomen, his muscles still twitching in final protest. His small eyes were open and vacant, a dull sheen to them. I looked down at his robes, the navy stained a purplish-brown from his wounds. On the collar of his robe was the image of a crescent moon, stitched with glittering golden thread. On the opposite collar was a sun with thick rays, stitched with the same thread but muddied by blood. Did any of his soldiers remain? Where would they go now? Edges of bright yellow robes, stained with blood, puddled under Mateen. A pit opened up in my stomach, filling with fear. I followed the fabric and lifted the heavy arm of the assailant to peer beneath. Asher's lifeless face stared at me, his mouth slack and open, dark blood dripping from his lips onto the ground. Mateen's arm fell with a thud and I scooted away, tears blurring my vision. No, no, no! My life, my future pulled from under my feet. A crushing weight collapsed onto me, onto my chest. I couldn't breathe. His beautiful robes, bright like the sun, marred by the monster. What of his wives? Of his children? What of me? It couldn't be true. Not now, not when I was so close. Everything within my grasp suddenly turned to water, and I could hold none of it. I had nothing. So quickly, I was again an Ahira. Heavy, retching sobs tore from my chest. I crawled away, messy in grief, disrupting piles of salt, desperate to get away from the death, uncaring that my knees and hands pressed into blood-soaked rugs. I threw my head back against my father's throne and cried, snot spilling down my nose and tears flooding my face, choking and sobbing. I couldn't do it. Go back to my father, go to the harem to tell my mother, go back to my sisters. I dropped my face into my hands as I attempted to reconcile my fate. As I attempted to understand why Masira could allow me so much joy only to snatch it away. Could I return to what I was moments ago, when my mind had already drawn the map of my future? What would I do now? My hands fell to my side and my fingers brushed something small and metallic, sending it spinning slowly beside me. My father's vessel. Golden smoke twisted and billowed within the glass walls, agitated like steam with no place to go. I looked around the room, seeing if someone, if my father, had suddenly arrived to retrieve it. Swallowing my tears and feeling cavalier in my grief, I reached for it. I was the disobedient child again, 
one who knows flames burn, but yearns to touch them because they dance. Lifting the vessel slowly from the ground, I was surprised both at its lightness and its warmth. I studied the intricate carvings in the thin gold bands wrapping around the glass. A chain arose from one band and connected to the one on its end. The end was almost flower-like with petals that closed down over the glass. I pushed against the golden petals, and they shifted. It was some kind of lid. Tentatively, I placed my fingers over the lid, seating them so that I could pull it off. What was I doing? What was the smoke, and what would it do to me? It could hurt me. My father could hurt me. Or sons. What if the smoke did nothing and simply floated into the air and left the jar empty forever? If my father discovered that I had been the one to ruin his prized treasure, I did not want to think what he would do to me. But I realized I did not care. What more was there for me? Asher was the only suitor of dozens who had wanted me. Surely he was the only suitor who would ever want me. I would either be cast out by my father, or I would die in the marauding of what now seemed an imminent war with Matin's men. With a deep breath, I pulled the lid from the vessel. As if it had a will of its own, the golden top shifted in my hand. I yelped and nearly threw the vessel across the room, but I held it at arm's length as I watched, fascinated, as the petals on the lid opened up like a flower at the sun. Horror quickly consumed the appeal as I realized the iridescent gold smoke leaked from its glass container. I continuously slammed the lid back onto the vessel as the smoke escaped beneath my hand, but it was transformed and it no longer seated onto the top. Whimpering, I tossed the vessel on the ground and began to stand. Golden smoke continued to fill the room, and soon I could smell it. Dust with a hint of jasmine oil and something completely unrecognizable, like life and wetness. I fell back into the throne, sitting paralyzed and staring at the impossible amount of smoke that flowed out of the vessel, far more than could have fit inside. Soon, the cloud of golden smoke was so thick I could see nothing through it. I looked around the room. Someone would walk in at any moment, see the billowing gold, and know I had meddled with my father's things. I would be punished, perhaps sentenced to death, because I had been the one to lose his treasured... smoke? The smoke was coalescing in front of me now. It did not behave as smoke should, spreading throughout the tent and disappearing up through its fine mesh. Instead, it collapsed down onto itself like falling motes of dust. I frowned as a large box-shaped form appeared. The tendrils of vapor dispersed, and I understood I was not looking at an object. It was a kneeling man. His back was turned and his head bent low. My eyes widened and a new terror gripped me. I was alone in a tent with an unknown man when only moments ago unknown men had tried to kill my father, had killed his soldiers, had killed Asher. But this man, he seemed to have arrived through the very thing Asher had denied was possible when I told him my tale of the Salt King. 
magic. I stood, staying crouched low as I calculated the safest escape. Yes, master. His voice was deep and smooth. He stood and began to turn toward me. I dropped down to my hands and knees, cowering as I tucked my head behind my hands, my eyes squeezed tight. Let me die quickly. There was a long pause. Master? He said uncertainly. His words were unexpected. He did not sound as if he had come any closer. I carefully raised my head to look at him. A soundless gasp rushed from my lips. This man was not of my world. His skin was the color of tarnished gold, and his body almost appeared to be forged of the same metal. He seemed ancient, as though crafted one thousand years ago, yet also ageless. He had an intimidatingly large frame, and the curves of his arms and broad back undulated as he breathed. Was this a god? One of the sons? I was immobilized with fear, with wonder. His hair, slightly darker than his skin, was pulled back into a long tail, contained within thick golden rings. His face was bearded and appeared hewn from stone. Below his hands, familiar golden petals encircled both wrists. I glanced to the glass jar beside me. The cuffs resembled its petaled golden lid, still attached to the vessel by the fine chain. Staring more closely, I saw that the edges of the cuffs seemed to melt into his hands, transforming into the faintest golden roots, veins, that tapered off at his fingers. My attention moved from his hands to his hips, where a dark indigo sash was tied, the only color on his monochromatic figure. For all his elegance and beauty, something was not right. Despite his immensity, he seemed very small, his eyes shadowed, his mouth held tight. His body was curled forward as if in surrender. Every piece of him conveyed powerlessness. He could not be a slave, there were no dark scars on his bare chest. So then, what was he? His gaze was trained on the ground as I surveyed him. He did not approach. I watched him, curious. Who are you? I asked. At the sound of my voice, his eyes flashed up and met mine. I flinched. They were even more golden than his body. They almost shimmered as he stared. His shoulders fell back, his face softened, his eyes widened almost imperceptibly. He appeared relieved, intrigued. I tensed, regretting that I had spoken at all. My name is Salim. He bowed his head forward. Where is your father? My... my father? I don't know. It was a strange question. What are you? I finally asked. Do you not believe me to be a man? A small smirk crept onto his lips. When I did not respond, he continued. I am a jinnie. Jin. My skin tingled. We had all heard the stories, legends of such creatures. They were rogues with volatile magic not to be trusted. He continued to stare at me until concern distorted his features. 
He stepped forward, his hand outstretched as if to touch me. I leaned back, flinching, but could not retreat further as I sat pressed against the front of the throne. Heat radiated off of him, hot waves that crashed into me. He paused when he saw me cower and pulled his hand back to his side. There is blood on your face. Are you hurt? I gestured to the dead men that surrounded us. The Jinni looked around the room with surprise. How he had not noticed them before, I did not know. With his attention on the corpses, I roughly wiped my face with my fingers to remove the stains, realizing too late that the blood on my face had come from my own bloodied hands. Your father is safe, he said after a moment. It was not a question. Did he sound disappointed? How do you know? He looked back at me, as though considering an answer, but said nothing. I asked, do you belong to him? Some would say I do. Masira would disapprove of the idea that he had ownership over me. I serve whoever releases me, you see? I served your father. Now, you. My brow knitted and I cocked my head. This Jinni belonged to the king. He could be his ally, his friend. Or he might tell of my disobedience purely for his own amusement. My stomach lurched and I sat straight up. He will be returning soon, I said quickly. You should go back. I gestured to the empty glass jar on the ground. I, I am sorry, I did not know what would happen when, if I had known, it was a mistake. I didn't mean to release you. The words tumbled out. The last thing I wanted now was to face the Salt King's fury. Emel, stop. He said this soothingly, raising his palms to me. I will speak nothing of this to your father, if that is what you fear. He knew my name. I had not told him my name. I had to get out of there. Fear flashed across his face as he watched me, but his words were level. Wait. I am not yet ready to return home. He flicked his fingers into the air, and suddenly the room was absent of all sound. Even the torches blazing around the perimeter of the room were silent. Astonishingly, they had frozen in place and flickered no longer, their tapered flames like glowing stone. There was a stillness in the air around me that felt surreal. Magical. I turned back to the Ginny. What happened? What did you do? I backed around the throne, my hands in front of me, preparing for I knew not what. Stilled time. No one will come now. No one can bother us. He seemed satisfied, pleased with what he had done. The edges of his mouth lifted into a small smile, though they scarcely reached his cheeks before he saw my face. His smile faltered. I don't want to hurt you, he said as he stepped forward, slowly closing the space between us. I can't hurt you. His words were so earnest I stopped moving. Please, he said, and reached a hand toward my face. He moved slowly, as though approaching a wild bird. 
He touched my temple. I winced, closing my eyes. The heat of him rushed at me like a gust of wind, but his touch was soft. He ran his index finger across my forehead and down my cheeks, the tip of his finger leaving a muted burn. His caress was soft, careful, and though it was not like Asher's, it reminded me of that which I had lost. When he pulled his hand away, I opened my eyes. He continued to move slowly, his gaze repeatedly flicking to my face as if to check that I was all right. When he noted my trembling hands, I saw his shoulders fall. You can trust me, he whispered again. Watch. He took my hands one by one and ran his fingers along my palms. My mouth fell open. The blood disappeared beneath his touch. It is better this way. You won't draw attention when you return to your sisters. Speechless, I touched my clean palms. Now, he continued, you have released me from my vessel, so I am bound to fulfill your wishes. Wishes? I was reeling. You are my master. I serve you. He dropped to his knees and began to bow. I was reminded of the palace servants, of my sisters. No, stop it. Stand up. I touched his shoulder. His skin was hot and I pulled my hand away as if I had been burned. He looked up from his kneel, but he did not rise. His offer was mesmerizing as endless possibilities flooded me. Oh, the things I could wish for. Freedom? My sister's freedom? A brick of salt for Firu? My mother's freedom? My father's death? One thousand da? A cold bath? A large meal? But in that moment, I could think of only one thing that I wanted most, and I cared not that legend said to be careful with the djinn. Now, can I wish for something right now? He nodded and smiled. Anything. Bring back Asher. My voice shook when I said his name. I pressed my hands together and said it strongly. I wish for you to bring Asher back to life. I dropped to my knees in front of him, growing hopeful again. Perhaps all was not lost. I smiled. Please? It's all I will ask of you. The slave begged the slave. He dropped his head. That I cannot give. My smile fell. What? I asked, the aching sorrow beginning anew. Once Masira takes, she will not return. His voice was quiet and he looked at me sadly. I cannot bring him back to you. Then what can you do? I said, standing, tears spilling again. What good are you? My words hit him like lashes. Emel, he rose to his feet. There are limits to the magic. Your father had the same. My father. This Ginny belonged to the Salt King, and Jin were dangerous. He was not someone, some thing I could trust, regardless of what he said. My father? I was incredulous. I am not 
talking of your master. I huffed. I need to return to my sisters. You must return to that. I pointed to the vessel. And I want you to not speak of this to the king. He nodded his head, his mouth turned down. It will be as you want. Perhaps next time you will have a desire that I can fulfill. I will never see you again. Let me go. He sighed. I will grant that for you. But no, if you need something, you need only to think of me. I will come if I can. With those words, the jinnee moved close to me. He placed his hands tightly on my shoulders. I grimaced, trying to step away, fearful of a betrayal that proved he was loyal to my father. But before I could escape his grasp, the room shifted and I found myself in front of my home. I spun around. Yael and Alim, beside the entrance, alert with hands on the hilts of their swords, were as frozen as the flames had been. I peered down the path behind me and saw nothing but a whisper of golden dust. There was no movement, and I heard nothing at all. Time did not move. Confusion throbbing in my skull, I pressed my fingers to my brow. My sisters were arranged in a motionless cluster when I stepped into the tent, all still, draped in their sparkling Ahira costumes. I saw tears and horror on their frigid faces, mouths hanging open, evidently in the middle of speaking. The large torch blazing at the center of the room reached toward the sky, desperate and still. I had only a moment to register all of this before everything changed, and the room was alive again. Emel! Thank Arab you are okay, Rahima cried. Lamentations of concern for me, our father, and our brothers surrounded us. Seeing them, the pain of the afternoon stung me again. I could scarcely comprehend any of it, dizzy as I was by everything that happened. They asked where I had been, if I had seen anything. I shrugged and shook my head, not knowing how to explain that something else, something separate from them, had happened to me. What of Asher? Tavi asked. Our eyes met, and I shook my head. I did not want to talk about it now. She understood. Carefully, she wrapped her arms around me, and we embraced while my sisters talked and talked and talked. When the guards informed us that we were safe for now, that the thread had been eliminated, I went to my mat. I wanted to sink into the deepest sleep. When I lay down, I felt a firm swelling beneath my back. Confused, I reached under and found a large indigo sack beside my map and ink. It was wide enough for me to fit both of my hands inside. This was not the small pouch I normally kept concealed. I pulled open the bag. More salt than I had ever possessed in my life, more than all I had taken from the king, met my eyes. I looked to my sisters. None paid me any attention. A family could live comfortably for years with the amount I clutched in my palms. I had not stolen this, so who else would be so daring to steal and gift it to me, to put it where I hid all of my things? Who, besides my sisters, knew of that? It was almost as if it had appeared by magic. Magic, 
With a swift tug of the strings, I closed the bag and stuffed it beneath my bed. Who was this Ginny, and what did he want with me? I curled into myself and pulled the blanket over my eyes to sleep. May Arab show me mercy and keep me forever in my dreams. And just like that, Amel's world has been completely turned upside down. Why didn't she just wish for her freedom? Tune in to the next episode where we find out exactly what it takes for Amel to call on the Ginny again. And don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you so much! CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms in our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.